You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now step into the arena of ideas with your host, Dr. Brian Shelton. Coming to you from the mystic, majestic Appalachian Mountains, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this uh, episode of the podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Chilton. I'll be your host for the next uh, 30 minutes to an hour that we have together, and we hope you're doing well uh, wherever you may be. Uh, just a few uh, housekeeping items. Let me just first of all say to you, Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, it, I cannot even believe that we're talking about Thanksgiving being next week, but sure enough, uh, it is. Uh, just so you know, we won't have a podcast uh, coming up next week. We will not have a podcast next week uh, due to the Thanksgiving season. So uh, on behalf of the Bellator Christie family, we wish you and yours a most blessed, happy Thanksgiving. And we want to say hello and and uh, to all of our friends who are uh, down in San Antonio, Texas for the uh, annual Evangelical Theological Society Conference and also Evangelical Philosophical uh, Conference. Uh, we hope they're all having a fantastic time down there. I have to be honest, I'm a little envious. <laughs> I've seen some reports and seen some uh, uh, discussions that were had down there, and I know, I know they they have uh, they're having a wonderful, wonderful time. But we're going to have a wonderful time tonight on our podcast on our episode tonight because we're talking about a very compelling uh, topic, and that's called the intertestamental period. Uh, during this time, this is the time between uh, the New Testament, Old Testament. We'll, we'll get more into that here in a few moments. Uh, a lot of things happened during this time, and there were some books that were written. And so to here today to talk to us uh, about this very issue is uh, uh, Dr. Mark Phillips. Dr. Phillips has been on with us here uh, on the podcast, so he's no stranger to the Bill and Tour Christie podcast. Uh, so we want to welcome Dr. Mark Phillips uh, with us today. Hello, my friend. I hope you're doing well. Well, thank you, Dr. Chilton. I am. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, this is this is a topic of discussion that I've actually uh, had the uh, pleasure of creating a course around this topic. Uh, <clears throat> I borrowed a phrase from B.B. Warfield, uh, Bibliological Apologetics. I still have yet to find a work where he defines that ter- those terms. <laughs> But I borrowed it anyway, and it's a it's a course that delves into uh, a little bit of history uh, from from the Old Testament moving into the New Testament. We cover the intertestamental period. We do cover a little bit about what we're also going to discuss. You and I, uh, some of the work that was produced, and and just uh, look at why it's. It's probably good for most Christians, uh, if you're a, a pastor, like we're, we are both pastors or have served as pastors and, or, or will serve again as pastors, whatever the case may be. Um, it, it's good to keep that in mind in Bible study. And as I think as you and I work through this this evening, it'll show 
our listeners, both from a uh, uh, hermeneutical standpoint, the study of the Bible, and also uh, just an apologetics view of why it's important to know what happened between the time period of Malachi and Matthew. So good Absolutely. stuff. Yep. So I want to show this because um, um, I think this is important. We have, um, I've got here the new annotated, uh, the new Oxford annotated Bible with the Apographa. And as you can tell, mm-hmm. it's pretty thick. And mm-hmm. if you get a Bible like this, there's going to be some additional books in it that you don't typically have in a traditional Protestant, uh, a Protestant canon. Mm-hmm. And so I, I so think I, I've got one of those. Hang on. This is funny. <laughs> Yeah, I have a different, same thing, but different. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> and so, I mean, there's some amazing things in here. So let's let's first open this up uh, to ask the question, what do we mean by uh, the intertestamental period? Well, let me, let me go back to high school days, okay? This is a funny <laughs> story. I was dating a young woman who told me that, that she had a, uh, in her words, this is her terms, he had a Catholic Bible because it had extra books in it. Mm-hmm. And being raised Methodist in a small town in Appalachia, I had no idea. Of course, I was like, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, she was right. It was a, it was a Bible. It was a Bible, not what I was used to. Um, that has additional books, uh, and depending on which Bible might have a few more or a few less. Um, and they're, they're books that were generally written uh, sometime beginning during the intertestamental period, uh, closer to the birth of Christ. And you and I will discuss some books that were probably written after the, after the time of Jesus um, that carry a slightly different uh, title. But these books are generally referred to as the Apocrypha. And they are books that were originally written in Greek during this time period. Uh, they're not considered part of the Old Testament canon. However, as you and I will discuss, there are a, a few denominations that do utilize these books and do have them bound into their Bibles. So, um, and, and we should probably explore a little bit about some of the subject matter of these books, or at least... How about we start with the intertestamental period before we get up to these these books themselves? That might help set the stage a little bit. Absolutely. So uh, I guess I mean this wasn't really on our questions, but but I think it needs to be discussed as you mentioned. What what are some of the key events that happened during this intertestamental period between? Again, just to simplify for our listeners who may not be familiar with this topic, the period of time between the Old Testament. Between Malachi and Matthew, the the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Exactly. Yeah. That. Well, the name kind of gives it away. Enter or between the testaments. And as a, a very, you know, I grew up in church. I got saved at a young age, but it always fascinated me, even with minimal biblical knowledge. It seemed like there was a tremendous difference between the end of the Old Testament. Uh, you have you have uh, you know Jerusalem being rebuilt, and you have uh, uh, people are speaking Hebrew, and and then all of a sudden in the New Testament, 
uh, I learned that it was Greek. Well, that's weird. Where did that come from? And then we start talking about people with the name of Herods. Where did that come from? And then the Romans were out there. Well, where did they come from? And then there are things called synagogues. Well, where did those pop up? And there's just a whole list of, of things that pop up in the New Testament that we don't necessarily read in the Old. And I thought, well, where did those come from? Something must have happened in between. So in a nutshell, and I found that when I speak with uh, laypersons in my church, because to me it is important to kind of know these things, and, and you and I can look at one passage in particular where this information is somewhat important, but when the Old Testament ends, the Persians are in power. <clears throat> and so it, there are a few layers of culture that we that it's good to know between the time of the Persians and the time of Christ. So the Persians are pretty much in power until a young Macedonian by the name of Alexander the Great comes along, and he conquers most of the known world in a very short period of time and rules for a very short period of time. But around uh, 330 BC, let's just use that number. That's a good number. And as he conquers the known world to facilitate communication and control of his army, of his empire, his army's control, he forced the people to speak Greek. Okay. Now there were some, namely some holdouts, mostly the Jews living in Jerusalem, but the Jews outside of the Holy Land uh, were more worldly and they picked up Greek because that was essential for commerce and, uh, and again, security and another thing. So you have Persians and then a native Greek speaker, Alexander the Great. Well, he died at a young age and his kingdom or empire was, were divided among his four generals. And this is discussed in the book of Daniel, as a matter of fact. So the two generals to remember are uh, Seleucus in Syria, that's easy to remember, and then the Ptolemies down in Egypt. And the Ptolemies, uh, the easy way to remember that is Cleopatra was one of the Ptolemies. So you have Persians, uh, Greek-speaking, native Greek speaker, then the Seleucids and Ptolemies, Egypt and Syria, then there's a brief period of time, about a hundred years, where the Jews in Israel actually take back control of their holy land and get uh, of their land and get to rule it. That's the Maccabeans, and that's where the the holiday of Hanukkah comes from. Hanukkah, that time that's right. period. Yep. And so then uh, there was always discord in the holy land, just as there is today. Yeah. You've got these foreign powers going back and forth and the, the Jews under the Maccabees trying to maintain control. During that period, some of the Maccabees go to Mount Gerizim in Samaria and destroy the Samaritan temple because there was always bad blood between Samaritans and uh, the Jewish people, even back at the end of the Old Testament. The Samaritans wanted to help rebuild the temple and and at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were like, no, thank you. And that kind of made them mad. <laughs> and then <laughs> around uh, 60, 
5 BC, 69, but around in there, you have the Herods all of a sudden come to power, and Rome has been interacting a bit in the area since the time of the Maccabees to provide protection. And then that's when the Roman rule kind of came down heavy-handed, uh, about about six and a half, seven decades before the birth of Christ. So you mm-hmm. just have to – and that's really all you need to remember because I was reading through again in prep, and I forgot just how the political alliances, how they're just back and forth and people are making alliances for a while – and then they'll fall apart, and there's battles going back and forth between Syria and Egypt. And it's somewhat of a political mess. But the other thing to remember, again, Persians, Alexander the Great, Alexander's generals in Egypt and Syria, Jewish rule, Roman rule. And that's pretty much what you need to know. Uh there's there's the background of why we have Hanukkah because the temple was desecrated, uh, which uh, lends itself to understanding the abomination of desolation in Daniel. The temple is cleansed. Yeah, yep, exactly. And and so the temple was cleansed after after it was a pig being sacrificed, wasn't it? I believe mm-hmm. so, and bones were strewn around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And they didn't have enough oil to burn for, but they didn't think it would last the full time until the oil was consecrated, but it burned eight days, and now the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. Yeah. So you have some major events in between there. But those are the layers that we have to consider as we move forward discussing the Apocrypha. So. And I think that's important because a careful Bible reader You'll, you'll notice that in Daniel you have um, these different kingdoms. That the Persians start in that area. You learn more about them in some of the later Old Testament books. But then come New Testament times, you, you're introduced to the Romans. And you know if you don't know a little, at least a little bit of something about the intertestamental period, you'll, you'll think, all right, wait a minute. What happened to the Persians? What, what, how did the Romans get here? I mean, you just, you'd be kind of lost. In the, in the process. And so uh, during this time, you, you mentioned a collection of books were written known as the Apographa. Uh, what are some of these books? What are some of the books in this collection, and, and what are they about? Well, they vary. Some of them are Jewish history, and they're fairly accurate, like the books of the Maccabees. Uh, those were the family that seized control of uh the land of Israel between the Seleucids and Ptolemies and the Romans ruled for about a hundred years, give or take, excuse me. Um, If if you remember, if our listeners remember that uh, during the time after King Solomon, when Israel split into the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom and the Northern kingdom got, uh, invaded, and its people were scattered as exiles. They settled around the known world at that time, and a large contingent of them wound up in Egypt, as did uh, Jeremiah later. But this contingent in Egypt, when Alexander the Great uh, swept over the known world, that's when Egypt began speaking Greek and some of their Egyptian temples even took on a look and flavor of this Greek influence. But 
So after a while, you had the majority of Jews speaking Greek as opposed to Hebrew. And so because there was no Hebrew Bible for them and their majority of them wanted to know the word, probably about 150, 200, 250 years, depending on which story you read. And there's some, there's some discussion on that. Um, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, books of Moses, were translated into Greek. And tradition says 70 translators worked on it. And the Roman numerals for 70 are LXX or Septuagint for 70. And then subsequently, the remaining books of the Old Testament were translated into Greek. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain a good number, if not Esther. I think Esther is the one that's missing, isn't it, from the Dead Sea Scrolls? I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have copies of the Old Testament prior to the birth of Jesus. They happen to be written in Greek. Uh, reads, it reads fairly closely to what we have now and what we're about to discuss here. There were some additions to these Greek Old Testament books of the Septuagint, this Greek Old Testament. So the, the books we are discussing now, the Apocrypha, are a mixture of what we would consider historical fiction. Uh, for example, Tobit and Judith. Um, they now what fascinates me and the way I try to explain this to adult learners today who may not have much of the background that we've just discussed so far. Um, uh, a good comparison, at least for me, to kind of broach the idea or let everyone understand what's going on. If you think of the Left Behind series of books, yeah, those are those are Christian fictionalization of possible events as described in the scriptures. So the scripture is the basis for this fictionalized look at the end times or what is to come, because a good portion of the apocrypha deal with these sort of uh, these sort of Day of the Lord scenarios. Um, and remember, they are based on scripture, but we as Protestants don't view them as scripture, just like we wouldn't view left behind series as scripture. But it right. is, they are books that can be read. And so I use that idea. That may not be entirely accurate, but I think it's fair enough to give someone an idea. Oh, okay. They're taking scripture and they're writing these books based on it. And, and, Take it with a grain of salt kind of thing. So you have Tobit. Now, what fascinates me with Tobit is there's a dog that's a companion in it. Of the entire book, if you read it, there's a dog that's a faithful companion. It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a decent portrayal of a dog as man's best friend that sets out on the journey. But the thing that fascinates me is there's a discussion of a woman who has had seven husbands and they've all died on her wedding night, on the wedding night. So that makes me wonder if the question asked by the Sadducees of Jesus, whose wife will she be, if it, if that question wasn't asked with Tobit in mind. I, yeah. Because the Sadducees would have been the group that read these Greek Old Testaments. And so, but I don't know that. I can't prove that, but that's just something I wonder. Maybe someday when we get to heaven, I'll find out. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And then, and then Judith is an interesting book because as I understand it, the, the more religious conservative Jews really struggled with that book because here we have an older widow who is still very attractive according to the book. And she's upset with the townspeople when a foreign army camps outside the town. So she takes matters in her own hand. This almost sounds like a modern. I don't want to say woke movie, but an empowered woman movie. And she goes out and she woos the general or the leader. And she brings him back to her tent and he's drunk and she cuts his head off in her bed. (laughs) (laughs) And that, and then she, she proudly defeats the enemy because she brings his head out as, as demonstration of, of, of her superiority. So she saves the town and puts the men to shame and, and so, the, and that's, ancient, that's ancient Greek or book. I mean, yeah. ancient superhero book. <laughs> there you go. Marvel should do that. I mean, they could do a modern take on it. But, <laughs> but there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of books about the Maccabees, and there were some books that were written a little later about the Maccabees that are sometimes included. And the first two books. Um, <clears throat> One of the reasons that you will find these books, Apocrypha in Catholic Bibles, as I've mentioned before with, with the young woman I was dating for a while, um, it's because in Second Maccabees, there's a passage about prayers for the dead. So in, in a Roman Catholic sense, it's not correct to call them as part of canon or the main, what we would consider the 66 books, a Roman Catholic view would be that they are second canon or deuterocanonical. They're, they stand alongside, but it's one way after uh, the Council of Trent affirmed these books that that um, that uh, Roman Catholics can justify the idea of prayers for the dead because it's done in the book of Second Maccabees. So, mm-hmm. and so, and then you have some other books. You have additions to. Uh, to Daniel and additions to Esther and but what fascinates me like Bale of the Dragon. Yep. Always found that one fascinating. Psalm Psalm one fifty one, which reads yeah. like a children's psalm to me. It's eight verses about David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. So I can see some some Greek speaking Jewish person wanting to write a little psalm about David confronting his giants, perhaps. But the ones that really fascinate me, and and we might as well since we we have the time and things are going well. One way that I, one thing that I'm fascinated with are these wisdom books in here. Now, wisdom books in our Old Testament would be considered books like uh, Job and Ecclesiastes and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, and they give they give advice. Uh, for a life well lived. If you follow these things, you'll, you should have a good life. Not a guarantee, but good to practice and, and good things will hopefully result. But there's one book, there's a couple books. There's Wisdom of Solomon. There's Sirach. Um, and I, here's what I've done to kind of help explain some of the, the, uh, if you go to Sirach 12, which is a wisdom book, and it, it's written for uh, Greek-speaking Jews. Um, 
to give them some counsel for life. Now, and I'll just read a couple things here. Now, this uh, to try, try to lighten the mood because in some time I have some very conservative um, members of our church, older members who who have no idea about the apocrypha. They weren't raised with it. They're very leery of it, which I understand and I get because because I understand the people I minister to, and I don't want them to get upset. So to put their minds at ease and to help them understand why, uh, as, as Protestant or as Baptist, um, we would not hold these books as canon or scripture, but we can look at them historically, particularly these wisdom books, to find out why Jesus would say some of the things he said during his sermons, because in Sirach, it 12, it gives advice on how to treat your enemies. And, and for example, uh, let's go to verse four. It says, give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them. For by means of it, they might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good you have done to them. Mm. For the Most High hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. A friend is not known in prosperity, nor is an enemy hidden in adversity. One's enemies are friendly when one prospers. But in adversity, even one's friend disappears. Never trust your enemy for like corrosion in copper, so is his wickedness. So here we have this book. <laughs> and you compare that with what Jesus teaches in Luke on about your enemy. And I start seeing the light bulb going off with these older uh, Christians and younger ones too, because, you know, in the last 50 years, evangelicals have tended to circle the rat wagons and anything that kind of smacks of something that's not Baptist or not evangelical or not Protestant. There's a leeriness to it. And, and I don't want them reading this as if it is scripture. But when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say, it makes me wonder if he doesn't have some of these books or at least this teaching in mind. Because if you look at the nature of his sermons, he's trying to correct these misunderstandings uh, of the Jewish Jewish stressing of the law and how that formed into this idea that that a person could gain their righteousness by pursuing the law rather than establishing a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And so when 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 the light bulb sort of goes off with some illumination, it's like, okay, these books are giving some instruction that contradict what Jesus says. So if something yeah, contradicts yeah. what what Christ says, then um, it's probably mistaken. And it's yeah. a good, gentle way to show them. And I, I try to make light of it. I said, if, if you really want to read these books, your head will not explode and you will not use, lose your salvation. If you love <laughs> Jewish right. history, knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that's generally my approach. I mean, it's just an easy way and it's hard enough to get people to read their Bibles. Uh, yeah. It seems to me. 
So, so maybe the young or the curious or someone will read the Apocrypha. But again, again, fortunately for us, if you've, if you've read enough of the Bible, even just read it through once and, and you're saved and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, well, you have the two witnesses that are going to tell you whether this stuff is correct or not. And we'll see. And that I, I do yeah. Go ahead, yeah, I, say, I do find I do find that interesting that you know the, the book of Sirach, uh, Sirach gives that uh, advice and as you said Jesus comes back and corrects this line of thinking. Um, it does make you wonder if I mean surely the literature was around by that time. It does make you wonder if maybe that had been read and that was the way some people were living. Only do good to those who mm-hmm. were supposedly righteous and and don't have anything to do with anyone who with the even apparent appearance of evil um and that is a stark difference from what jesus teaches to do good to those who pray for those who despise you and do evil to you definitely a a big difference so around this time and a little later uh there was another collection of books. This isn't. This other collection's not included in in the Bibles we uh, we were looking at. But this is a collection of books called the Pseudepigrapha, uh, and these this collection has some really interesting books in it. Uh, like, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the books of Enoch are are in this collection yeah. as well. So, what were some of the notable books in the Pseudepigrapha, and what are some of the things? They discuss overall themes. They discuss. Well, the easy I, I found the easiest way to to kind of bring that conversation up is to go to the book of Jude. A little time if you go to Revelation, come one back. <laughs> little book of, of Jude, and here's how I stumbled into it years ago. Okay, because if we read in uh, Jude. Verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. <clears throat> so, I remember, this is, this is much later in life, this is not teenage years, but I thought, well, I don't ever recall having read that in the Old Testament. I don't remember this dispute with Michael and the devil over Moses's body. And the thing is, it's not in there. And, um, it, uh, it can be found, or at least, uh, it's paraphrasing a book known as the assumption of Moses. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why would a book in the new Testament quote a book that's not in the old Testament? And it is one of these books that were mentioned. It was lit, written during the time period, probably after Jesus's life. Or, well, if it's in Jude, it would be probably during the time or a or hundred years before. So, and and the way I've heard it explained, and and I like your opinion on this too, as we get into it. But if you think of a pastor today, they can quote from any book that's out there to try to prove a point in a sermon. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but here is this idea that's now inscripturated. So there, there are a couple different views you could take on this book, but 
in any case, it is now present, and the way we look at it is Judas saying, look, and he's arguing against false teachers is what he's doing in the whole book. It's the most masterful three cycles of taking down false teachers and their detriment to the church, and he happens to quote from this one book. So, so that, And then the other issue would be the idea of angels that comes up later, and that would be from, I believe, mm-hmm. First Enoch. So whoever's yeah. writing, uh, when Jude is writing this, he obviously has a knowledge of these Hellenistic Greek Old Testament style books that are available. So, so it, it kind of raises the question, well, just how many of these books were circulating and, and, and were they that well known to the early church? Because apparently they were. So I'm I'm happy for your input on this as well, because I'd like to hear what you have to say, because I know you probably studied these, these, these pseudepigraphy more than I have. So. Well, and most most of my most of my uh, study on the pseudepigrapha has has honestly been more around First Enoch, and uh, I do find I've often wondered. I don't know that I have a. I could answer. I've often kind of wondered maybe was that one story accurate and as you said, preserved by the Holy Spirit and scripturated? Or maybe is he just pulling something from common parlance and giving this using this as as an illustration? Uh, I know in my messages I give a lot of illustrations to, to try to hammer home point. Most of them are true, some of them are you hear a dad jokes. There's some pastor jokes uh, and things that nature. Not necessarily you know true, but just to drive home a point. And when it comes to that story, you know, I don't I don't know if I have it. I have an answer on that. I I've often kind of wondered if maybe that that particular story maybe it was true and it was picked up by Jude, but I, I couldn't. I, I certainly don't have a you know a stake upon which. I'm willing to die on either side. <laughs> right. Right. I, I, you know, with some of these, some of these mentions, because the Old Testament mentions a number of books that are either not in existence anymore or yeah. are in existence, but so it's not unheard of for a, a biblical author, Old Testament or new, to make reference to a book that we may have or not have. Mm-hmm. So, now, uh, one of the things, uh, uh, if our listeners have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. um, they have they have a whole plethora of writings that were incorporated in them, uh, including uh, a number of the pseudepigrapha, and and a lot of these books were of a style. I think we should mention their style now. Um. There is a style of writing, and everyone recognizes it, particularly between Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation as examples, known as apocalyptic. It's a style of writing where, in a nutshell, these horrible things are going to happen in the future, but the consistent theme is that God is always the winner. Uh, For example, if he is is it's the day of the Lord and he's releasing his wrath and those who oppose him um, will be taken care of. 
Mm-hmm. And so a number of these books in the pseudepigrapha and, and, um, I actually, I do have a list here. I pulled up my Geisler. I have to look at Geisler. And he's got, uh, first Enoch, testimony of the 12, testament of the 12 patriarchs, Sibylline Oracle, Assumption of Moses, second Enoch, second Baruch, and third Baruch. And he's referring to them as, uh, a standard collection of pseudepigrapha, and he names seventeen altogether. So, so they are they are writings that are not necessarily part of the Greek Old Testament or the Apocrypha, but they stand out there, and they were obviously known to the New Testament writers, or at least some of them. So the the, the bigger question then becomes, as this flows in, well, how much? Uh, how much of the Apocrypha, for example, were actually quoted verbatim in the New Testament? <laughs> and, and to my knowledge from scholars I've read, there may be allusions, but outright quoting them or presenting them as scripture, it doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen because the, the best way to understand it is, uh, Hebrew remained Spoken in Jerusalem, the, the the Jews in Jerusalem held on to their uh, language, and and in some ways there's a similarity between the hanging on to the language, keeping because that's what God's word was given in was Hebrew, and so they they tended to favor that. But there's a remarkable parallel. Uh, those in Jerusalem tended to look with disdain upon the idea that God's word was translated in the first place or moved mm-hmm. into a Gentile language. And to me, that's somewhat similar as what the Roman Catholic Church wrestled with when when trying to decide if the Mass should cease being given in Latin and moved into the language of whatever the congregant or the diocese, whatever country that was located in. Yeah, the common vernacular, I suppose. Yeah. And so, so now we have, we have, we have Roman Catholics. For everyone on here who watches this probably has a friend, a Catholic who probably goes to an English speaking church and hears the mass. But someone out there may have a friend who's a member of the Latin rites of, uh, who are still doing it the way it was prior to the 1960s. So. So there's a, a not remarkable number of these similarities that pop up through time with looking at these books and looking at the time period and religious attitudes and political attitudes that the, the more you study this intertestamental period, uh, the more we kind of can see ourselves reflected in the turmoil. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that leads us to some. Uh, some, some things we can conclude about our own situation in the world and, and the way things work out for us. So you, you've mentioned this already. Um, and, and maybe you can further expound on it a little bit more. What, what are some of the, and you mentioned the teachings of Jesus. You mentioned, uh, even perhaps apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature, how it works. But what are some more? Of, what are some things that people, you know, people, somebody may be listening to this podcast and thinking, okay, maybe I don't have a lot of exposure to the apocrypha, to the pseudepigrapha. Uh, what's some things that can help a person in studying the New Testament, studying the Bible in general, 
what can these books help them understand? And why would it be important for them to uh, look through some of these documents and read some of these documents? Yes, I, I wasn't turning my back on you. I was looking for a book. Uh, I was looking for one of the, uh, the Gnostic Gospels there. I, I'm going to cough here, so let me mute my... <laughs> and Gnostic uh, Gospels, are the, these are the Gospels that, uh, just to let our listeners know, these are the Gospels that were not included in, uh, right. in the Testament canon. Right. They were written usually after the year 200 AD, long after the early church and the apostles. <clears throat> because I have other stories about teaching that one. I was looking for the Gospel of Judas because that one will really show when someone hears it, they know that it was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because this right. some yeah. nasty stuff in it. But one of the things that we can learn, you know, we begin to understand the the uh, intertestamental period. If you look at John 4 with the woman at the well, and that that encounter typically, typically not always, but most people have heard a sermon on her lifestyle and her multiple husbands and the fact she's currently living in sin. All, all good sermon topics. But she gives some answers in the back and forth discussion with Jesus. She says, our ancestors used to worship on this mountain. And I'm assuming that's Mount Gerizim, and she can't worship there anymore because the temple was destroyed about 110 years, 130 years before their encounter. And so, so she's bringing up this bad blood because she says, what, what is it that you, a Jew, have to do with me? Like, why are you talking to me? And so she's pointing back to this time period that, for example, the Maccabees would be discussing. Because, because prior to the, the, the Maccabeans destroying the, that temple, Gerizim, the ancestor, her ancestors of the Samaritans who were under the control of the Seleucids went in and defiled the temple in Jerusalem probably 50 years before. And so it's long-standing bad blood between them. And we can learn what led up to these things like uh, Hanukkah, which is mentioned once in the New Testament mentioned in John's Gospel in chapter 10, but it's not referred to as Hanukkah. It's referred to as the Feast of Dedication in Winter. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so just knowing these books and, and knowing a little bit about the time period, um, it, it helps set the stage for the arrival of the Messiah. Now, one book that I had, because <clears throat> I did a refresher before coming on, you know, I thought I should at least review some things. But a book that I found that was that was fairly delightful that is either available free or dirt cheap. Because <laughs> I'm all about free <laughs> and dirt cheap. But just in case anyone wants to read a concise uh, book, that's it's this book is over a hundred years old, but it is such a it's only about a hundred pages. It's it's uh 
The 400 Silent Years by Ironside. Mm-hmm. And he mentions, and I didn't know this till this morning, which is kind of pathetic, but <laughs> when he goes in since Christmas is coming, he, he, he mentions Anna in early in Luke's gospel. And he mentions that her husband, because it says she's been a widow four score in so many years. He mentions her husband and what Ironside mentions her husband and what he was doing. Uh, 80 some years before the birth of Christ and, and his ties, political ties again, these politics intersecting religion because a notable development during the intertestamental period is that the office of high priest was sold to the highest bidder. Yeah. And I, I remember when that, when I first heard that because there have been detractors who will say, why is Caiaphas listed as high priest? Because when you read the histories, Caiaphas is no longer high priest. It's either his son or son-in-law, I forget. But he he was a shadow high priest operating behind his family member. And so because the high priest office was sold to the highest bidder, uh, that kind of shows the relationship Jesus had with those in power at the time because they were not legitimately chosen priests, uh, descendants of Aaron. Now, mm-hmm. now you had Zechariah in at the beginning of, uh, you know, uh, Luke's gospel. They, they were allowed to participate, but the actual office was a more political office chosen by money than it was by biblical standards. Mm. So the whole thing is rotten to the core. And it was rotten to the core before Jesus came on scene. <laughs> and what fascinates me when he goes into the temple and turns over the tables and and harasses the money changer, makes the cat of nine tails with a whip, and is his choice, his two books he quotes from, or the two passages, Jeremiah and Isaiah. <clears throat> In Jeremiah 7, he speaks what the, he he is given by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord gives him what to tell the people. And Jeremiah 26 actually describes what happens when he pronounces a curse on the temple. And it says, says that the people in the temple desire to destroy him. They want to kill him. The exact reaction of the high, of the priests and scribes to Jesus when he quotes from that passage. And so, so there's a, the period, the intertestamental period is such a period of turmoil, political, social, geopolitical, military, religious, uh, culture, and into this whole swirling amalgam of, of, uh, of people behaving badly comes our Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. And and by reading the Apocrypha, we get that sense of, okay, this is where Judaism, uh, because we don't really read the word Jew uh, many times in the Old Testament. So you kind of get this idea that's a, um, and as the best way that I've heard it described, Judaism is a religion focusing on strict observance of the 
Mosaic law. Mm. But a Hebrew is a descendant of Moses. And if you, if you can nuance the distinction between someone who observes the Mosaic law and someone who is a descendant of the promise, a descendant of Moses, which Christians are, by the way, because we're grafted in, mm. that, that, that kind of helps understand this tension where Jesus is dealing with these very religious Pharisees, these very Hellenistic Greek oriented Sadducees. He's running up against the Herods or Herod, who is not a descendant of Abraham through Jacob, but through Esau, <laughs> which makes it even stranger that these Idumeans are in power and the Romans are like, ah, we, <laughs> you know, you know, we, the, the Herod that came before had a problem up in Galilee and we deposed him and we put in our own people. And, and, and it explains why Pilate takes his hands off the situation because he's been in trouble before. And so they've got a civil servant in there trying to do the work of maybe a king. So, so it's just a fascinating period of history. And as you ask that question, you know, now I, my grandpa Phillips was Catholic, but my grandma Phillips was Anglican. And then my mom's parents, the Wisemans, they were just country church folk. <laughs> I doubt any of them really read the Apocrypha. I doubt any of them had any knowledge. So as I was discussing with a member at our church two Sundays ago, the Bible contains, our Bible, 66 books, contain what is sufficient unto salvation. Absolutely. It is not, it is not exhaustive, however, on matters of history or culture. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I look at all the generations of my family who probably never knew what the Seleucids or the Ptolemies were. They had no idea who the Maccabeans were. And I'm sure, sure they're, they're absent from the body, present with the Lord and having a good time wherever <laughs> in the presence of Christ without ever, ever knowing these things. But if you're someone who studies and you like to study, and not everyone's wired that way, you will enrich your understanding of the Gospels particularly if you read up both the time period of history, like the Ironside book, which is 99 cents or cheaper, 99 cents on Kindle. You can find scans of it for free online. And then read the Apocrypha with an open mind, like, okay, this is the culture of what Jesus was born into, and this is what he has to deal with. That's the value of it. Absolutely. And I think, and I think, uh, believe it or not, we're we're almost out of time. And you know, I think we we had a couple other questions here, but I think you you've already answered it. Uh, that, uh, that that in Catholicism they're viewed as deuterocanonical. Uh, I mean, deuterocanonical books, uh, not on the same par as a canon. Uh, what, what about the Greek Orthodox Church? That was one church. I you know I, I know they have the Apocrypha, but did, I'm thinking they had a few additional books. I, I believe so. Yeah, because there's a couple different canons out there. Um, I honestly, I would have to look that up. Oh no, that's no I, problem. I, I know, I know that the Ethiopian, the Coptic canon, has what seventy some. Yeah, it's, I think it's so. massive. Yeah, it's it's probably so, just a mall. Yep. Yeah. So, so 
that it's a good lesson if someone picks up a Bible at a friend's house or at a bookstore and it's like, oh, well, what on earth is all this? <laughs> and, <laughs> That's right. Or even if you pick up this uh, new Oxford annotated Bible, because I know some, you know, some programs, you know, they they will require this yeah. this edition. And so when you look through this and you're thinking, what are these other books that might be helpful yep. if a person were to take a college class somewhere and 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 have to get one of those? And and if someone is listening who is one of our brothers and sisters who prefers the trusty old sword, the King James, um, don't be surprised if some young person who knows too much because they saw it on TikTok. If you understand the politics of the church in England at the time when the King James is translated, the original King James does have the books of the Apocrypha in it because the church in England had not separated from uh, the church in Rome. They had been separated very long. And so that was part of the issue of why, how the King James came about, was this separation of, of a movement of the Anglican church away from the church in Rome towards Protestantism. It, it's such a yeah. fascinating history. So don't, if, if you're someone who loves the trusty sword, because I live in an area where most people cut their teeth, my age cut their teeth on that Bible, and they still like it, and that's fine. That's good. Um, uh, you just had to be used, because there's usually some young smart aleck, and I say that with a smile, who said, <laughs> did you know the King James had the Apocrypha in it? Well, now they do. <laughs> and it's like, well, do you know the so? <laughs> So again, if you're if you're led to study the apocrypha, go ahead. Uh, you'll learn some history, some culture, and you'll understand the Lord Jesus uh, better. And if you're not led to do it, uh, your Bible's sufficient unto salvation. So don't feel the least bit guilty if you're not interested. But but Absolutely. I, I I would encourage those who are so inclined, who might be. I feel a call to teach or might be teaching to spend some time studying because it, it will enrich your understanding of particularly of the gospels. Absolutely. Mark, I hope and pray that you and your family have a wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving and a fantastic Christmas season coming up to you. And so for all of those who are joining us tonight, whether you're listening to the live stream or whether you're uh, listening to our uh, podcast, whether it be through YouTube, Facebook Live or on, on many of the, the many of the uh, podcast apps, uh, which this uh, this podcast can be found, we wish you uh, a most wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving as well. Uh, again, just as a reminder, next week we won't have a, an episode uh, due to the Thanksgiving season, but we'll be back at it uh, the week following Thanksgiving. For Dr. Mark Phillips, this is Dr. Brian Chilton saying God bless, and we'll see you back next time that we step into the arena of ideas. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. This program is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. If you enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review. Also tell a friend. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.